ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi there, welcome to The Minefield, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, and sometimes we just talk about the dull necessities of life. Thus is today's show, where we are going to talk about tax. Don't switch off, or fast forward. We'll figure out a way to make it interesting in a minefield sort of a way. Uh, minefield sort of a way. Well, Ali is my name. Scott Stevens will try to help me with this task. How are you, Scott? I'm well. The dull inevitabilities of life, really? Well, you don't think people would describe tax that way? Ah, I think people who are fundamentally disinterested, democratically disconnected, and otherwise inattentive to the moral realities of democratic life, maybe. Surely you mean uninterested, not disinterested. The point of tax is that they're interested, whether they're interested or not. Ah, that's very nice. I like that. That's that's what we're going to get today. That was was intelligent humour. That was the kind of fiscal humour you can expect on, you know, Waleed's Emporium. You're really selling it. No, well, I, I agree with the sentiment of what you're saying. It's fundamentally... In some ways, it goes to the heart of the social settlement, right? That's or the social right. contract, or whatever language you want to use around it. And it's not just about redistribution. It's about incentive. It's about production. It's about reward. There's all kind. There's about solidarity. It's there's true. all elements to it. Can we bookmark so actually, that? Can we? I mean, that precise little element of the conversation. Can we please bookmark that and come back to it? Because I think which we, bits that. Well, everything you just described about what else taxation is all about. I think that's a really significant aspect of this conversation that we pass over way mm. too quickly, or this dismissed as being uh, either irrelevant or so naive as being positively dewy-eyed. I, I think. I think it's it's where we, in many that's respects, interesting you say, yeah, it's yeah. interesting you say that though because. The, I would say far from being so naive, it's actually, it's the whole thing, right? That's right. I agree. But also, like, we're having this conversation in the, we, oh, let me just flag it. We're getting to the stage three tax cuts conversation. Mm. And there is more temperature around that than I can remember around a tax discussion. Outside of American general politics. application. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. I was thinking, what's the last one that had that? You could say mining tax, mm-hmm. but really the one that it reminds me most of is GST. GST, exactly right. Um, and the fact that there is some heat around it says that it is tapping into something that's about more than spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. That there's something more philosophical at play here. That's right. That is exercising people's emotions. And perhaps in a way that, and I, you know, I think I'm about to argue this in the course of the show. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say, but... um. In a way that might be overdetermined and a bit overwrought, but that's beside the point, really. It's it's there for a reason, and it's because it. Well, the reason is that it it speaks to something deeper than the dollars and cents. Mm. All right, so we've laid that groundwork. Do you want to? Well, the other element of this is there were objections, of course, that were raised at the time when stages one, two, three of this current lot of tax cuts were announced, proposed, and then presented to Congress. Uh, Congress, wow. And then presented to Parliament uh, in 2018, 2019. If this were simply at the hands of the previous coalition government, Mm. then I think the temperature would be of a completely different variety. Yes, yes, this is what we've come to expect from a particular side of politics, uh, imported possibly over from the US, trying to ease the burden on some of the upper income earners, 
uh, adopting a form of sort of slightly watered down, trickle down economics that sees, you know, the more money that you pump into the discretionary income of people, the more money there will be to flow around. If this were simply being championed by one side of politics, I think the jockeying, the uh, arguments, the pleas for reconsideration that are coming from economists, from political philosophers, from activists would be of a different variety. The fact that these are tax cut stages, especially stage three, which we're going to talk about in detail in a moment, the fact that this is now being championed, maybe not championed, but at least it's being put through by a labor government for whom this kind of approach to tax cuts should be so philosophically inimical. It should be something that would never be championed by a left-leaning, even a centrist left-leaning uh, federal government. This is the thing that kind of makes the urgency there. And I think there's also a sense to which uh, the very nature of the public pleas that are being made, the public arguments that are being put, the purpose of it is to try to give this government cover to go back on what is effectively a promise that they've taken to the electorate, which means that I think when we are approaching this particular issue of the both the ethics and the economics of the stage three tax cuts, we're dealing with a kind of thick knot of thorny issues that aren't simply matters of economics. They aren't simply about fiscal policy. They aren't simply philosophical either in the sense of what do we believe taxes for? Um, although all of those things, I think, are involved. But they're also about when should a promise made by a prospective government or a democratically elected government, when should a promise made to the electorate be so binding that that promise cannot be broken without severe electoral damage, even in the face of changing economic and world circumstances? I'm not saying that that is the case. That something has changed so dramatically that there's cause uh, for Labour's promise, which was, after all, made in 2019. We have had no, a few no, things see, happen the, in between. Uh, yeah, this, uh, can I pick up on this? Yeah. This is the argument I like least. Oh, no, and I'm not making that argument, but please, go ahead. Well, okay, actually, so what you've done now is you've separated the... This is obviously artificial, but you know what I'm saying. Mm. You, you've separated the political dimensions of this from the policy-slash-economic taxation dimensions of this. I've distinguished right? them. I think they both need to be yeah, dealt with. Yeah, is a better word. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. And they can be considered separately because they are both significant. And I don't think it behooves us to pretend that the political dimension of it isn't significant. That's right. Particularly from the perspective of political integrity and promise keeping and so on, which is something that people like to scream about often and often for good reason particularly when they don't like the promise being broken. <laughs> right? And I think we need to be very, very careful. And by we here, I think I mean anyone who is urging the government to break a promise. Yes, yeah. I agree. So I don't mean that to describe you and me personally necessarily. I just mean, you know, a sort of abstractly. I think we need to be very careful when we start saying, well, let's just forget about the broken promise bit. This is too significant. Mm. Right? This is too big an issue to, for that to detain us, because that is precisely the argument that licenses pretty much any broken promise. Mm. Right? And I fully understand the point that when these tax cuts were legislated, and so that was done with Labor's support in 2019 mm. as the opposition, in the aftermath of the 2019 election, yes. 
which they lost. And which which is also a pretty from. important part of the story. It's fundamental to it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. To the political calculation. But if if you want to argue that, well, that was 2019, a totally different world. We've had a pandemic since. We've got all this government debt that we didn't have, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is true, but in my view, irrelevant. Mm, interesting. Because in the election campaign of 2022, Labor was repeatedly asked about this and repeatedly stood fast to them, the, the tax cuts. I know this because I was one of the people asking them that question. Every time they had a cost of living thing that they were going on about and they were talking about budgetary responsibility or whatever it was. And remember, they campaigned hard on cost of living and they campaigned hard on political integrity. They ca- th- these were not side issues in the campaign as far as the Labor narrative goes. These were central. Mm-hmm. And at every time when it was put to them, yeah, but you've got all these billions of dollars in tax cuts at the top end. How does that square with your, I don't know, whatever it might be, reluctance to increase job seeker or whatever? Remembering they hadn't promised they would increase job seeker until they actually did it. Right? Mm. There was no indication they were actually going to do that. That's right. They'd resisted that, right? So these were the forms of the questions. Incidentally, precisely the form of the question that's being put to Labor now. So the question hasn't changed. Well, what I'm saying here is if you're going to start arguing for there being a case for breaking a promise on the basis of changed political circumstance, the relevant reference point is not 2019. The relevant reference point is May 2022. Yeah. Because that's when it was all reiterated, when Labor's steadfastness was re-articulated that's repeatedly. Yeah. My question would be, what is the seismic change in political or economic circumstance that would justify the breaking of a promise that's been re-articulated that recently and that often? And I just don't think they exist. You have a cost of living problem. Yep, you had that then and they were campaigning hard on it. The war in Ukraine had started. The consequences of the war in Ukraine were clear. The pandemic was winding down. If anything, it's wound down more. The World Health Organization has declared an end to the global medical emergency. The budget is in a much, whether you fluked it or otherwise, is in a stronger position than it was back then. So the arguments about government debt, et cetera, would have been stronger then than they are now. I'm trying to think what else you would say. Inflation? Well, yeah. But the tax cuts don't come in until the next financial year and the budget papers, for what that's worth, don't forecast inflation being at this level then. Hmm. What is the forecast? 3.25, something like that. So that's not within the two to three normal band, but it's pretty close to it. So I, I just haven't heard, and maybe it's out there, Look, I you know, I'm not trying to pronounce a definitive declaration here, but like I haven't heard anyone identify the particular circumstance that would say we don't need to worry about the political integrity dimensions of this. And what, what it would license in the end is an argument that says, yeah, but we all know they didn't really like that policy and it's bad policy, so they should be able to change that. Well, imagine if that was the, the way of doing democratic business. That's now, a cynic might say, well, that's how we do it anyway. Okay, great. But that's nothing to celebrate. Yeah, but and that's I mean, nothing to champion. That, that's right. And let's also remember that one of the great fears, and there were two, I think, fundamental fears that were motivating Labor in the lead up to last year's federal election. One was that almost de facto, the coalition was very quickly becoming the party of governance once again. You had those intermittent moments in which Labor is in power. But by and large, when the chips are down, when circumstances are at stake, when you know, meaningful circumstances are at stake, that it tends to be the coalition uh, that gets voted in. And so there was a renewed effort to... Uh, present itself as being trustworthy 
as being centrist, and I think sorry, labor as being trustworthy. Labor as trustworthy. Labor yeah, had just been vanquished on a redistributionist agenda, and, and that's the second point. They had just taken. You're right, a redistributionist. Uh, and wide-ranging platform to the electorate had been soundly defeated, even if that didn't look as though it was going to be the case in the lead-up to that election, that there was an appetite for change, and it became very clear, well, in 2019, no, there wasn't, certainly not change of that variety. So I think the fact that it's a centrist Labour government who's trying to make as few ructions as possible to the conditions of our common life, um, I think that was all very significant. So then to try to trumpet the importance of trust and political integrity, to then live through the ignominy that surrounded Scott Morrison uh, after his defeat, and to then break one of the fundamental promises that could have been used by the coalition to say that, you know, here you have it, Labour uh, says that they're not going to raise your taxes, and here they are abandoning the very platform of tax cuts that they promised they were going to share the platform with. Uh, so all of these things here, I think political trust becomes such a massive currency. And it becomes one of those things where if you dilute, if you otherwise compromise the ability for a government, a new government, no less, to be found to be trustworthy, even if it's something that seems to go against its governing or underlying philosophy, then I think you lose so much else that you lose the opportunity fundamentally to be able to persuade the electorate that you're going to be trustworthy on other things. I would suggest that the only way, if things were really significant, if circumstances changed to such a degree that the stage three tax cut simply could not go through, could not be implemented without severe damage being done to the conditions of our underlying life uh, or to you know, some of the basic tenets of fiscal responsibility. If that were the case, I, it seems to me that the government would have no choice uh, but to call an early election, to put it before the electorate once again and to say, this is the promise we made. We took it so seriously, in fact, that we're not going to break it unless we give you the chance to have a referendum, if you like, on our ability yeah. to, to be trusted. I mean, you and I both place a high premium on political trust, on trustworthiness in, in public speech. This, I think, is one of those points where the political cost, the democratic cost of going back on a promise would be such that it would run the risk of torpedoing much of the rest of this government's ability to govern in a matter that's going to be taken seriously by the And can I add to that? It's not actually about whether you or I care about political trust. It's that it's also that they placed it front and center right. in their exactly. political campaign. Yep. So it's not just a broken promise. It's a broken promise about broken promises. Yeah. <laughs> and you can have an argument about, well, they placed it front and center, but look what they've done on, you know, federal corruption commissions and blah, blah, blah. I mean, okay, we can get into a whole thing there, but... I don't think we need to actually, because that's a separate argument. That's that's kind. Of, well, it's not separate, but that's kind of about policy design and what you think a federal corruption commission would look like, and it takes you down a different set of questions. But that fundamental thing about political integrity being a centerpiece of the way the Albanese government won, and also its language since means that it's elevated in importance even beyond what we might regard as like the datum condition yeah. in democratic life as an abstract notion. All right. Fair. So wow. can we say we've dealt with the political dimensions of it and then go... Yeah, I think so. All right. So where do you want to start with the other aspect? Well, can I just... I just wanted to point out very, very briefly that it's not always been obvious that taxation should be or in fact is a driver of social justice or a promoter of equity within democratic life. Um, one of the things that's fascinating to me 
is going back. I mean, this is, it's a period that I'm really interested in. You know, I'm dispositionally more interested in the political philosophy and the moral history behind it rather than the economics per se. But it's just fascinating to me that, you know, right up until the midpoint of the 19th century, so much public conversation, even political conversation surrounding taxation, still had the stench of the forms of coercive conscription or coercive seizure of the 17th and 18th centuries, whereby the monies of people privately gained, personally held, uh, were seized for nefarious ends. So the idea of kind of coercive seizure of what is rightly mine still... Tax as oppression, basically. Tax as oppression, exactly right. That's still kind of hung like a pole. What I think is so interesting is when you get to the second half of the 19th century, I mean, in France, in the UK, in the US, in Germany, you find already the beginnings of a kind of rumbling or a slow movement towards the notion that taxation can be used as, if you like, the equivalent of a kind of insurance premium. So you don't know what's going to overtake you in life. Therefore, you pay tax in order to safeguard yourself against whatever might happen in the future. The idea of paying into a kind of social safety net. But it is still fundamentally about me. I don't know if I'm going to be left destitute. Therefore, I pay in advance. Enlightened um, self-interest. Enlightened self-interest, yes. But it's still it's still a movement away from you know, the idea of taxation as being the seizure of something that is fundamentally mine. So you've got this yep. idea of tax as a kind of insurance premium. And then you've got the idea of tax as a kind of fee paid for services rendered. Again, it's a slightly different, but an analogous version of the same thing. I drive on roads, I use public services, therefore it's only right for me to pay a fee for the use of those. Sorry, can I just ask there, please? Is that any conceptually different though than to the, say, you know, pre-Westphalian notion of tribute, for example. You're the empire in which I live. I pay you a tribute. Mm -hmm. In recompense for that, I get protection. What a wonderful so, association. Yeah, that's exactly right. Although one of the things about Westphalian politics is that it was still based upon the earlier tributary. Well, what Marx called, dear God, I'm quoting Marx, what Marx called the earlier tributary. That's a quote Marx, God, it's fine. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he called it the, the tributary mode of production, which was essentially uh, you pay resources from the outline districts. You pay those resources into the center and the center in turn casts its shield of military and economic protection over you just in case, you know, others come and try to take what yours. I think there's something fundamentally analogous there. But the basic idea of fees paid for services rendered uh, is still the idea of there are certain public things that go far beyond private interest and therefore... Yeah, yeah. But are we just saying that the services rendered in this case have expanded to include things like roads and yeah. healthcare and yeah, whatever? Yeah, for sure. Or, but it's the same concept or are you saying it's a different concept? No, it's, it's, still the same, it's still the same concept. It's just that things are more geographically centralized. Things are more geographically compressed, uh, uh, located, rather than that money being paid across but what would come to be national lines. Right. But it also represents an expansion of the notion of state authority and what yes, that's meant perfect. to do, right? So the idea that the government, it's the government's job to provide your roads and your whatever, that's that's a particular vision of what the government is meant to do that may not have been a pre-modern notion. Yes, I'd is. have to look more into pre-modern forms of governance, but you get the idea mm, that mm. I'm gesturing at. So in other words, it's interesting because when you talk about the idea of tax as theft, the usurpation of one's rightfully earned property, etc. Mm. What's kind of embedded in this, it seems to me, is the transferal of redistribution as something that comes from one's virtue as a you know, charitable act or even as an act of patronage, an act of 
like a moral demand on you Mm -hmm. to an organ, an intermediate organ such as the state, who then just takes over a lot of those roles. So now you have this idea, for example, I hear people talk about this, that basically charities shouldn't exist. Charities only exist as an expression of state failure, that the only reason you have charities is that the state's not doing its job. That's an exact inversion of what you might have called a pre-modern approach, which is that it's not the state's job to do that. That's actually the stuff of human life. Mm, that's right. Of what you, we might call civil society. Mm. Right? So in other words, the, the idea is, I think, that the whole way we now think and talk about tax is wedded to actually quite a, you know, in the grand sweep of history, relatively recent notion of what the state's job is. Mm, that's right. And just how expansive the state's role is and how implicated it is yeah. in all aspects of our yes, lives. But, but can I add a little kind of twist to the story? And, and I think this is really important. Yeah. To some extent, you're right. The expansion of the state is inversely proportional to the, the diminishment. Diminishment's probably the least value-laden word uh, of okay. civil society organizations. Uh, so the state expands and those civil society groups tend to contract as a and you have chicken and egg argument. Yeah, yeah. Okay. exactly yeah. right. But that doesn't mean then that the underlying logic of taxation becomes purely one of exchange or purely, you know, fees paid for services rendered. Because what you then have happen in the first three decades of the 20th century is that there's a kind of democratic remoralization of the practice of taxation and of the payment of taxes. In other words, you find a gradual decreasing. In other words, the whole thing about sort of an insurance premium or fees paid for services rendered, that almost becomes a kind of midwife going from the idea of tax as theft through to tax as mechanism of social equality and one of the signs, one of the rituals, if you like, of the un- of an underlying commitment to democratic equality. Right. So from oppression to enlightened self-interest to civic bonds and solidarity. Exactly. There's the gradual realization in the first half of the 20th century, and it's really important, I think, that this is a period that's covered by wars, that yep. massive misfortune cannot just overtake a person, but can overtake a society. And just because that person, that society undergoes misfortune, it doesn't mean that they are thereby morally devoid of merit of industry, of ambition, of thrift, or all of these things. These things can simply happen. And so one of the things that taxation does is it mitigates the weight of fate itself. It means that your success or otherwise in life is not simply due to your own industry, your own ambition. And, and I mean, John Rawls, I think, put it best that one of the underlying principles of taxation as a form of redistribution is part of our commitment to one another, that we simply do not abandon one another to be crushed by the weight of fate itself. And this is really, really important, I think, Waleed, because one of the ways that then taxation receives massive democratic approbation, even when it reaches quite extraordinarily high levels in the 1940s and early 1950s, one of the things that undergirds that is, on the one hand, the non-moralization of poverty, that poverty doesn't suggest a fault in character, in industry, or ambition, or anything else. We've talked about that before. But also the idea that one of the things that we do when we pay out of our increased amounts of money is we are then mitigating the contingencies of social and economic life. The idea of redistribution isn't that I'm giving a gift to somebody else, 
but rather this is one of the rituals that contains within it the very conditions of possibility of an egalitarian democratic society. Now, if I can just lay one other little plank in this, which I think leads us, unfortunately, to where we are now, what that then means is, as you have the tax base, the thing which is in fact taxed, uh, increasingly focused on income rather than on wealth, when you have the and emergent, on labor as opposed to capital, of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, then you have certain benefits that are afforded to the wealthy, and you have the emergence of loopholes that they can then slip through. Hence, the contraction of what's sometimes referred to as the tax base, the amount of the, the amount of money or wealth that can actually attract tax and therefore be redistributed. Um, and then you have the affordances of the welfare state for those who are in the direst circumstances. So you have certain affordances to the wealthy, you have certain benefits to the impoverished, and then that means, and again, John Rawls saw this incredibly clearly in the late 60s and early 70s, you have the emergence of a condition of envy on the part of the working and middle class, where they're not wealthy enough to enjoy the affordances of the truly rich, and they're not poor enough or desperate enough to receive the full benefits of the welfare state. And therefore, they tend to have fall upon their shoulders a disproportionate amount of the tax burden, which then leads to some of the remoralization of poverty that we see in the late 1970s and early 80s. Yeah, I'm working and I'm being punished. What are these people doing? That's exactly right. getting the largest of the... That's yeah, exactly the largest right. would be a hard thing to argue. Yes, it would be. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. I think, well, I mean, well, one of the things, this I think leads us to some of, some of the deeper moral issues involving the stage three tax cuts, because there is a stepping back from a commitment to progressive taxation designs. Uh, there is a stepping back from certain now century old uh, commitments to redistributive policy. And that redistributive policy being something that is willfully and even, dare I say it, without a whiff of naivety, even joyfully entered into by people within a democratic culture that is committed to fundamental egalitarian principles. And anything that I think steps back from those undergirding commitments really does have the potential of not just feeding back into that kind of remoralization of poverty, but also undermining the affective basis on which taxation can survive as an expression of our democratic commitments. Okay. So I think I agree with that conclusion. Well, I, don't know. I said, I think, okay. I mean, we're on a radio show, Scott, I can't, I've got a hedge. I can't, you know, we have time. I'm, but, I'm fine with, I think. Well, I'm just conscious of the fact that we've discussed none of the detail of stage three, I think what you're saying about the regressive nature and the philosophically regressive nature of it is true, but only sort of. Like, mm. I think it doesn't have to be true. Interesting. I think it depends on what you do with tax more generally, all these sorts of things. But I'm also aware that we have a guest who will be able to school us endlessly <laughs> about this. And so maybe it's pointless us <laughs> going into any of that. And then she can tell us what, if any of the detail is relevant to these sort of broader brushstrokes. So should we just do that? Please. All right. All right. Let's bring in our guest. Our guest is Miranda Stewart. She's professor of law at the University of Melbourne Law School, where she's also the director of the tax group. And she's the author of Tax and Government in the 21st Century, which was published last year by Cambridge University Press, which makes you, Miranda, pretty much the perfect person to join us on The Minefield. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm a little worried about the smirk on her face. It's the smirk of someone who says, who are these idiots that I've been listening to for... Oh, no, far from it. I've been listening and I'm like, you, you've totally persuaded me both ways. Oh, I should just go home. Okay, <laughs> oh, know, my goodness. That's it. What mm. do you want to pick up out of all that? 
So it's a really very interesting conversation you're having, actually. I've been thinking about a lot of these issues and that tax and government book is about quite a lot of that history of the 20th century capitalist democratic state and how it's financed. Um, did I get it broadly now. right, Miranda? Was it kind of more or less right? Uh, you did. I, I, I would put more emphasis on the 20th century, like really, uh, which you do in terms of discussing that early part of the century. Mm. The, the tax and welfare state, uh, so governments like Australia and essentially rich countries, so there's something to be, to be learned from that, right, that it's rich countries that have high and successful tax systems. Mm, right. These things are symbiotic would be my argument. Mm. And um, it's really only in the 20th century that we develop governments that are what I would call a tax state, financed and dependent on for their survival, taxes, right? We use taxes as the core way. 98% or 95% of our revenue comes from taxes. And the income tax is a pretty critical part of that. And, you know, let's not badmouth the income tax. We can come back to that, the progressive income tax. So, uh, yes, look, I think that political and financial and distributional story is really important. We would talk about taxing on the basis of ability to pay, uh, that progressive element combined with a welfare state and what we call the benefit theory of taxation, that, that provision of public public goods, or I prefer a broader concept of public benefit, which actually comes out of charity uh, mm. originally, which you referred to, Waleed. So, so, look, I think that's interesting. Let me pick up on two things that you actually did mention, uh, leaving aside the issue of political promises and political trust. That is justice. And you also said bad policy. Hmm. So uh, leaving aside, and maybe one can't do that, the issue of political commitments and trust for a minute, it is really important to understand that the stage three tax cuts, maybe they're a bit overdetermined, maybe we're arguing about a bigger thing, and those tax cuts kind of just pinpoint a part of that bigger thing. The biggest thing is justice. It really is distributive justice and the kind of what I would call fundamental organising principle of progressivity and taxation on the basis of ability to pay in our society. Um, I have to say I have always been a person who's objected to one element in particular of the stage three tax cut, and that is the flattening of the rate structure itself. So that's from 45,000 through to 200,000 as a single tax bracket, is that the Exactly. Bit? So the way that's done in the tax cut that will commence on 1 July 2024 is uh, by removing the 37% bracket entirely. So we have a progressive structure, I'm sure your listeners know, a zero bracket, 19%, currently 32.5%, 37, 45. And we have Medicare on top. Our, our tax rate structure is already pretty flat when you think of the Medicare levy. So it's 2% on taxable income on everybody. The Medicare levy already flattens the rate structure a bit because everyone has to pay it. So removing that 37% rate and also removing the 32.5%, dropping it to 30. 30 is a nice round number. Maybe we just all like that because it sounds better. Those are the things that cost a substantial amount in the in the proposal and um, remove, compress and flatten our progressive rate structure. They have always been my concern. Returning bracket creep or inflationary uh, gain by changing thresholds is not such a big deal from my perspective. Yeah, right. So we seem agreed. I mean, this was the criticism that greeted it immediately. In the interest of full disclosure, it's the criticism I made at the time. Like, so, you know, it's going to be hard for us to conjure an argument about that aspect of it, at least in this conversation. But 
Do you want to say that this is such a manifest injustice that questions of political integrity are overcome in some way? That this is such bad... Because if we were to say this is bad policy, such bad policy, that the political integrity aspects of it are just vitiated, I mean, everyone will make that argument about every piece of policy that that they don't like. Well, you know, I don't know if you keep count. Probably you do more more than I do as a voter because you're a journalist with an interest in this political process that we have in Australia. Mm. How many political promises are broken and kept every election? Do, mm. you, do we have an answer to that question? I mean, I, I don't know. It would be an impressive government that didn't break a single promise, so let's probably be clear about that. Sure. Uh, probably quite a lot of promises go by the wayside and people actually forget so, you know, I don't know. Sure, I value the democracy. I'm a voter. You know, I'm, I'm keen on this. I love our compulsory voting in Australia. Uh, I think it's a civic duty. I worry about what politicians say to me. I'm still not as bothered about it as perhaps I should be. I don't know. Would you be bothered about it if it was in the reverse? It was a coalition government that had said, no, we're not going to touch taxes, and then decided to introduce stage three tax cuts. Would you then be running the broken promises? Well, no, I'm not sure that I would really, because uh, everybody likes a tax cut, right? That's a kind of plausible political action to take. Oh, halfway through a term, now we're going to deliver tax cuts. You could argue that's a rite of passage and happens before every election. And you, you could argue that in a way, Labor in its original agreement to pass these I mean, we could say they were politically wedged uh, in some way. And then, as you said, they lost the 2019 election. It was kind of like they kind of had to. Um, So, look, maybe I I don't know what your listeners would think. Maybe I'm under-emphasizing the political issues. I think maybe you're of a determining political trust. Mm -hmm. And that trust, I think we trust our politicians you know, ideally when we trust them, which may be not that often. But what we hope for in government is that our politicians will do the right thing by us, and that is they will do the good thing for us. And I would respect a government that stated that, taking the long view, that actually this is better, this policy is better for us as a society, even if something different was taken to the previous election. Uh, Now, maybe I'm unusual. Um, I think a lot of people would be nodding as you say that. My concern is it just drives a truck through the whole concept of taking policies to an election. Yeah, well, well, perhaps it does. I I wouldn't have said they took this policy to the election. That's overstated. What they said is, well, well, it's done, it's done, We're we're not talking about it, so nothing to see here. I'm not sure that that's quite the same thing as Labor taking a policy. Well, they reaffirmed their commitment to it repeatedly under questioning. They've done it since. Yeah, that's true. But can I ask you a question? Have you worked out your tax cut? No. Do you know how much is going to come to you? No. You're probably in the bracket that will get something. Do you really care? Is this actually a promise to you personally about money in your bank account? How much do you care? Are you asking this of me as an individual yeah, or are you, you asking as this an as individual. an abstract? Well, both, but you as an individual, a representative individual. How much is this really a promise to you about what you're going to get in six months' time? Personally not. Like, But I could be a very unusual cat. I'm not sure that you are. My guess is most people who are in the cohort who will benefit especially from the top end of this distribution... Mm they are not even going to see it, Mm. right? So this cohort just doesn't bother them that much. And one of the reasons I would say economically, I mean, it might bother them politically and there might be a lot of palaver about it, but economically these are people who are very comfortably off at the top. 
So, so can I ask you then, Miranda, your fundamental concern here is the throwing of people who are by any account in vastly different economic circumstances, throwing them into the common tax bracket. Uh, you're worried about not just the effect, the disproportionate effect that that has to those at the bottom of the bracket versus those at the top. Are you worried about what that communicates to the people within that common bracket? Because one of the arguments here is that it's eliminating one of the dampening effects of kind of aspiration to move up through the ranks of one's employment, you know, the problem of bracket creep, which you've already raised. What's your, uh, apart from your economic concern, have you got another communicative concern? Well, just back on the aspirational bit, if you don't even know how much better off you're going to be because of this tax cut, like, are you going to stop working suddenly because we don't do the tax cut? The answer is no. So let's just, that's a furphy, right? Mm-hmm. No, you, you've asked the person who is at the top of the tax bracket. I'm talking about the person who might be in, let's say they're on the 90 grand. Yeah. Okay. So we can debate where in the distribution we care. Labor can think carefully about who the heartland is and politically what their risks are as well, right? You know, that's also something to be taken into account. 90000 a year is average full-time weekly earnings, more or less. Uh, you know, that's pretty high. Median full-time weekly earnings are more like 55, hmm. 40, actually 48000 a year. We haven't even disaggregated by gender yet. Hmm. The average is is moderately high because at the top, wages are high, right? That pulls up the average, even though the numbers are are low. So, you know, I am concerned about the overall progressive rate structure, and I would be happy to discuss where, you know, where we might change thresholds or, or, as you say, deliver some to average wage earners. You know, in 1950, we had 28 tax brackets with a top margin rate of 75 cents in the dollar, That kicked in at very high wages, right, 33 times the average worker. So what we have now is only five brackets and that top rate of 47 kicks in more or less at double average male full-time earnings. So we have this already very flat and compressed structure and also flat and compressed wage structure now compared to many years ago. Can I just pick you up on that though, Miranda? I mean, at the risk of, dear God, I'm not trying to put my head in the mouth of the lion or anything. But going back to the 1950s, the top tax level was high across developed countries in the West, remarkably high. Um, So you, you cited 75 cents on the dollar in Australia. We are dealing with conditions within the first decade following the Second World War where there were astronomically high levels of the sense of uh, social solidarity, of rebuilding, the onset of the welfare state, massive public housing construction programs first being legislated and getting underway. So you had the conditions within which you could have that those very high levels of taxation without the underlying conditions or risk or threat of deep resentment. You know, 75 years later, We're dealing with nowhere near the same levels of social solidarity. We've been incubating for the better part of four decades now in middle-class resentment uh, of the kind that I was trying to describe before. So the case for those higher upper-level rates of taxation, it's much harder to make and you don't have the same social substance, if you like, upon which to be able to draw in order to make them. So, look, I certainly 
I'm not advocating a 75 cent no, uh, in the dollar rate on, on wages, although, as I said, that, that rate kicked in at 30 times mm. the average worker. So, you know, one of the things about the tax state, about Australia as a sort of tax and spend government, tax and welfare state, is that we have all become tremendously rich in the 20th century, Australia and today. Mm. You know, we're among, one of the richest countries in the world, both in private household wealth and in national wealth. We've achieved that because, not despite of, but because we have an effective tax and welfare system. As in that system that's become more regressive? Is that what you uh, mean? Well, so just to come back to the issue of the level of tax in the 1950s. So the, what I was talking about was the rate, right, that yeah. top rate. So we need to distinguish between the rate applicable to any particular kind of income or taxpayer and the level, the overall level of revenue that we raise. Mm. So actually we raise a lot more revenue today than we did in the 1950s. You know, one of the reasons is because we're all richer, right? So we mm. actually have more which we can share in public resourcing, public goods uh, and so on. In fact, the highest tax level Australia has ever had was in the, the commodity boom of the 2000s. You'll notice that both of these things are conservative governments. Mm -hmm. So Menzies, you know, sat, uh, the, the rates were brought down a little bit, but Menzies sat over the expansion of public housing, health in particular, and high progressive tax rates. And we also had an inheritance tax in those days. Mm, and under the Howard government in the 2000s, you know, we had the commodity boom that we didn't know what to do with. Until um, we tried a mining tax and that went well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we tried a mining, yes, so the politics of taxation is always complex, of course, but that, that government had so much revenue, it didn't know what to do with it. Mm. Uh, every estimate of revenue was under an underestimate by the Treasury for nearly a decade. Uh, so it's all very well to say we're in a, in a different position. Now, I think we're in a pretty complicated position now. Uh, we have a lot more instability and risk Scott, you said that one of the reasons for paying tax, and I agree with this, is to manage social risk. Mm. Uh, it will help us manage environmental risk and so on. Uh, and the progressive income tax does achieve substantial distribution at the top. And what, what you have to remember if you're worried about inequality at the top of the distribution in income or in wealth, and we could come back to other bases. I do want to come back to that. Yeah. yeah. It, but if you, tax is one of the only ways, one of the only tools at the disposal of government to actually achieve re redistribution at the top. You're not, you're not paying out money to ensure that that people aren't in poverty. You know, many rich people don't avail themselves of some of the public goods we have available, although, of course, they do benefit from many. And, and so taxation is quite important in, mm. in addressing that, that growing inequality that we have had uh, since tax rates started to come down. Um, I just did a quick calculation just so I can try to understand what you're saying. If we were to introduce that 75% tax bracket on 30 times the average income now, that would kick in at about $2.4 million a year, something well, like that? I guess it that? would be if you say, oh, I haven't done the sums myself. It's very high, isn't yeah. it? So um, we're talking, yeah, yeah, so we shouldn't have this image in our mind of, of something like, well, they're, yeah. Um, yeah. The thing I've been thinking about a little bit, and I know you've thought about this a lot with comments that you've made, is just the very notion of what should be taxed. And I've been thinking about this idea of stage three tax cuts, the all the criticisms that attach to them, including the ones that we've been discussing here, attach to assessing them as regressive in nature, but looking at income tax in isolation, and more or less assuming that income tax should remain the backbone of our revenue raising. I think in the last budget it was something like 45% 
of all the taxes raised in Australia. That's all levels of government, by the way. So mm. that, that's that's a very high burden. We've got an ageing population. The number of workers per non-worker is going to shrink unless we do serious things with migration, which then raises all sorts of mm. other. You see the flow-on effects here. And so the argument I've seen economists make is the move shouldn't be to worry about the regressive or progressive nature of income tax so much as to figure out a way to get off income tax and have other ways of having a more durable, sustainable tax base. And maybe that is wealth. I mean, we, we talk lazily, I think, when we say we want to talk about tax rates for high earners as though it's about wealth. Mm, but that's, that's right. not necessarily true. There are people who have very high salaries for two years of their lives and they don't have much. And then there are people who don't earn actually very much and they don't need to because they've got all this accumulate, might be old money or mm. whatever. Right. So the distinction between wealth and income is one that just more or less disappears in our imagination, and I wonder if that's because we tax income rather than wealth. Would it be, you're the, you're the expert here, you tell me, would it be a more productive discussion to move away from thinking so much about income tax and thinking more about other just concepts or formulations of what should be taxed? So you're talking about what is the tax base, and there's a relationship, right? So income is a flow, both income mm. and consumption are what we call flows, you know, money in, money out. You can see that every year or every day or whatever. Wealth is a stock, right? So to, to capture tax on wealth, it's the value at a point in, in time, net of liabilities. My view is that we do need to think about wealth as a base. Uh, we also do need to think more carefully about consumption as a base mm. in Australia. So GST. Um, so the GST, we, we have we have the GST as our kind of token broad-based consumption tax, although it only captures about 50% of consumption because it has a lot of exemptions. And then we have specific excises. You know, we have alcohol, fuel, tobacco. They raise quite a lot of revenue, yeah. right? These are specific consumption taxes. And you could define an energy tax or a carbon tax as a consumption tax, right, on the consumption of a polluting good. Sure. And you want to change behaviour as well as raising some revenue. In fact, the carbon pollution emissions scheme that was enacted and then repealed was a, an effective policy and an effective tax. And that government did the Australian people wrong, I think, by repealing that. But coming back to wealth as a base. Or any other base, by the way. Or any the, other the base. Field is well, yours. Yeah. These things are all related, right? Wealth is just future consumption. Okay, so economists would say that these things are all, all connected and it's kind of how do you skin a cat in a way that's a terrible thing. There's lots of ways to go at the problem. Why did we end up with the way we currently have? for political and democratic reasons, for reasons of ease of administration. We can find the money, right? We have wages flow. We have income from capital flow. And because workers are here in Australia, now, of course, we have mobility in a global economy. People do exit and enter the country and work elsewhere, sometimes for tax reasons. Um, but most people don't, right? Most people stay here and they work here and we can tax them. So in the 80s, there was a, a you know, full-on economic globalisation, I guess, of investment, including capital and savings, and tax rates came down around the world on capital because capital was mobile. Investment was mobile. Private savings were mobile. The it's workers difficult. were trapped. The workers the were capital, trapped, right. exactly. But as the workers are not That's trapped. That's true. Well, you know, still, I don't know how many people really want to leave Australia. We have strong net inward migration. People want to come here, right? People want to come here. So that's a good tax base for us. We should welcome that. Immigration is good for the country, uh, from certainly from a fiscal and also other economic perspectives and social perspectives. 
But having said that, we do have an ageing population, as you said. Age is inevitably linked with uh, wealth accumulation, right? We accumulate over the life course. Most people, we earn and save. We have retirement savings. We have the home. These are our two big assets for most people most of the time. And the very rich uh, have all of their assets in capital and in legal entities like companies and trusts. Partly Uh, because that's tax effective, though. Oh, totally. So the idea that the top income rate paid by the very rich is 47% is wrong, right? I mean, Mm. the very rich pay essentially 30%. That's the corporate tax rate on most of their uh, return. So we should try and tax our wealth more. You know, we're in a situation where people have accumulated superannuation savings and are dying and leaving bequests. Um, we, We have house prices that have massively pushed up the price of rental and home real estate and is being passed on to the next generation and people have other financial assets too. We could reintroduce an inheritance tax. Everybody hates this idea. It's really still not clear to me why, with a high threshold. Um, but isn't isn't part of the reason people hate it that these things are always discussed in isolation? So, so yes, so what for you're example, about you were saying a... stage three is is this is the first phase in a big national commitment to make income tax less for everyone. Mm-hmm. Then I think it becomes a different conversation. Right? So it's a reform. So this is the other big narrative of tax policy that frustrated me from the beginning about the tax cut stages one to three, is that. This was not matched with a discussion about the base, right? This was not matched with a tax reform view, which would have a longer view in an ageing population and with, despite current commodity price success uh, leading to good good budget news, despite that, we have a structural deficit still and we will continue to have a structural deficit. And actually, our risks in future are higher, right? Our, Our needs, our care needs are higher than before. So we do need to reduce taxes on labour income, but I would say not necessarily of the cohort that's going to benefit from stage three at the top. So that's my first point. But we need to also match it. I think you're right with a discussion about the base. The trouble is normally when you do a, a compromise tax reform package, you don't do the kind of carrot first and the stick later, right? It's the politics of the stick are still going to be difficult later. But isn't that what Howard pulled off with the GST? He did it all together. Yeah. He did it in one single package already committed. And he did take it to an election. Exactly. So the political integrity thing was preserved. Yeah. You mentioned the carbon tax, how it was working, but one of the reasons it was so easy to undo was the political integrity of the process that delivered it meant that it was always standing on shaky ground and then, you know, a lethal opposition that saw an opportunity and pounced. I mean, we were, Australia was an early mover too. That's more than yep. a decade ago. Um, for the two and a half years that tax operated, it raised a good amount of revenue. Compensation had been delivered through the social welfare system through to low-income households. And to tax cuts. I mean, with the $18,000 tax-free threshold, all that. You know, so that's just a shame, isn't it? These things happen. You, part, you tip over in equilibrium, I think, in reform processes sometimes, and it's very difficult to go back. Yeah, but I guess the point I'm making there is that's why the political integrity aspect of it can't be divorced. You can't just go, it's just as good policy. All of it has to exist, otherwise it's unsustainable. Well, so, uh, look, that government, the Abbott government, I guess, went to the election and said, we're repealing the carbon tax and the mining tax, and the population voted for them, and that's what they did. So that's that's political integrity. Yeah, but only because the Gillard government said, we're definitely not going to do this 
then found itself in a minority government, then did it. Right, complicated. So it, it came in without an imprimatur, without a proper political integrity imprimatur and was always therefore vulnerable. Mm. Anyway, mm. we're now getting into political history. So what did we decide? We're redesigning the whole tax system? Uh, Look, you know, tax reform is a good idea and some of the Teals are are interested in tax reform and and doing some proposals. I think the government is still very cautious. They would like a second term. Uh, You know, (laughs) you're you're the political... uh, You probably need a second term to do tax reform because it's it's not a small thing either. Uh, and, And look... If the stage three tax cut were a part of that, I would be kind of grumpy, but I would—I obviously would accept the will of the people, right? I mean, if this is what happens, this is what happens. The trouble with reducing progressivity of the income tax in this way is that the income tax, the personal income tax, is the best way to achieve progressivity. It's the most progressive element of our current tax system. More so than wealth. Well, well, no. A well-designed wealth tax would be highly progressive but would not raise a great deal of revenue. So you actually need both. Mm. And so a combination of these things, I think, is what's, is what's needed. It would be very nice to capture lots of wealth at the very top. You know, the Greens have advocated a millionaire's tax and, and this sort of thing. What you have to remember is although there are some very rich people out there, even if you confiscated, you know, Bill Gates' wealth or Elon Musk's wealth, you could fund, for example, the budget of the New Zealand government for two years if you confiscated the wealth of, of the top 0.0001% globally. It's not enough, right? Mm. So to finance our government, we actually need taxes on, on us, all of us, the middle classes, the masses who work. And in an ageing population, what we need to do is bring more people into that labour market, older people women as second earners, make it easier for them to work and contribute then to the the fiscal base. They are the people who need low tax rates, not the people who are sitting on 200,000. They don't need lower tax rates. All right, Scott, if there's nothing further from you, I'll bring proceedings to a close. Sounds good. Miranda, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. Miranda Stewart, Professor of Law at the University of Melbourne Law School, Fellow of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and of course the author of Tax and Government in the 21st Century. Um, Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. May your tax be good tax, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.